And we're live. It's Sunday. It is the main course. This is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, I am your host, Katie Kiefer, today, and my co-host, Patrick Martins, is off in Texas doing what Heritage Foods USA business he needs to do down there. Um, today, we have a really tremendous show lined up. Um, the first guest we'll be having on is Peter Pringle, who is a world-renowned journalist from Britain who lives in New York City. Uh, he was the author of Food Incorporated, but today we're going to talk about a more recent book, The Murder of Nikolai Vavilov, um, which uh, I got interested in uh, after reading the um, the obituary of Norman Borlaug, who was sort of the American counterpart. Uh, Vavilov was really the father of seed conservation in the Soviet Union and, and had hoped to end world famine, not just in the Soviet Union, but around the world, and worked tirelessly to promote uh, plant genetics and seed conservation and was ultimately brought down by the apparatchiks of uh, the NKVD and Stalin himself, as well as uh, dissent amongst the scientists in the Soviet Union. It was a big power grab. So it's it's a fascinating subject. Peter Pringle will be on with us in a couple of minutes. And after Mr. Pringle, we will have uh, David Grotenstein on from um, the Director of Operations from the Garden of Eden, which is another small um, supermarket chain in New York City that has started up maybe about five, six years ago. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. No way. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I never right. noticed them until, I don't know. I know. But anyway, but secret. yeah, exactly. So <laughs> we're we're continuing our little um our little exploration of of food chains in New York. Um, we had Anna Zoitas on from Westside Market a few mm. weeks ago, and now we have David to follow Mr. Pringle. So Jack, why don't we dial up um, Peter Pringle, and um, I will read his fabulous biography uh, in the meantime, and. Um, and then we'll go from there. So um, for those of you who are not familiar with him, uh, Peter Pringle is the author or co-author of nine previous books, including Food Incorporated, which was a New York Times notable book, the best-selling Those Are Real Bullets, and most recently, A Novel Day of the Dandelion. He was the foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times in London and The Observer, and a former Moscow bureau chief for The Independent, again, a British paper. He has written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, The New Republic, and The Nation. So so we are truly honored to have uh, Mr. Pringle join us today on the main course. Um, are you there? I'm here. Oh, how excellent. <laughs> I'm hobbling about. Are you hobbling? Did you get a cast? No, I didn't get a cast. They wrapped it up in... In, in gauze and tissue? <laughs> <laughs> Christmas paper. <laughs> yes, that's right, with a nice big red bow on the side that's saying, right. do not walk. <laughs> that's right. Oh, I'm sorry. Pathetic. The whole thing is pathetic. Well, I'm it's... hoping you will heal up soon so that you can carry on with your important work. Yes. Well, what? Whatever. Well, whatever. But... I mean, you're always a, you're a busy guy, Mr. Pringle. You've no, got a I'm lot not. of projects going on. No, yesterday's man, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> certainly not uh, after the success of Food Incorporated. And, and now, um, today, we're going to be talking about your most recent book, The Murder of Nikolai Vavilov, um, which came out when, in July? Uh, it came out last year in May. I oh, think. last year in May. Uh-huh. Last summer. And because you had been the bureau chief, chief in Moscow, was that how you got interested in Nikolai Vavilov's story? Yeah. Can I just ask you, is this live or is this recorded? Or? This is live and recorded. And recorded. Yes. So actually, um, you can tell people to tune in if they go on the internet to uh, www.heritageradionetwork.com. Scroll to the main course, hit the Listen Live button in the top right corner of their screen. Then they can listen to you as everybody else is. And then you can download it later on and add it to your website or whatever you want to do. It okay. can be can be done as a podcast as well. 
Okay. So, and your name will be in our tag cloud. Okay. We have a tag cloud. So wow. that means that if people click on that name, uh, it will come up to your segment. Oh, no, it's, oh, wonderful. I, it's just incredible. I mean, I'm too old to really understand how any of this works, but um, my, my engineering friends in the studio here, Jack Inslee and Nat Wiener, um, they know all about this stuff. Wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Which is a good thing, because if it was up to me, no, this would not happen. This is true. Anyway, so, um, so tell me, uh, just to start, what, what got you interested in Nikolai Vavilov's story, which indeed is really a tragic one? Well, you know, I was a correspondent uh, for the British newspaper The Independent in, mm-hmm. uh, in Moscow. And I lived on a street uh, named after Lenin's brother uh, <clears throat> and um, Dmitry Ulyanova. And next, crossing that street, was a street called Vavilov Street. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea. I said, what is Vavilov? Who is Vavilov? You know, and all the rest of it. And, of course, most of the streets in Moscow around where I lived were named after famous communists and some foreigners like Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> and, but many of the names meant absolutely nothing to me. Sure. So one day I said to my friend, I said, who is this Vavilov? So uh, she said, well, actually it's named after Sergei Vavilov, who was president of the Academy of Sciences under Stalin. But his brother, Nikolai, who was a geneticist, a much more famous person, and unfortunately Stalin hated Nikolai and all the bourgeois geneticists, and so he uh, arrested them and imprisoned them and actually executed many of them. Yes. Um, and so that's how I got interested in it. And I said, well, and she said, you know, he's terribly famous. He tried to feed the world. So I said, what are you talking about, feed the world? What, what year are we talking about? So she said, well, uh, about 1920s, 1930s, something like that. So I said, how could he possibly have done that? And <clears throat> so she said, well, he was a geneticist, very early geneticist. And he went on all these wonderful expeditions all over the world. He went to, you know, the Fertile Crescent now Iraq and Syria, he went to the North African coast, he went to Ethiopia, um, which was then called Abyssinia, mm-hmm. he went to Mexico. Afghanistan, I was Afghanistan, fascinated by that South chapter. America, all over the place, yeah. collecting these wild seeds to train them or to, to insert them, not in a biotech way, but to, to breed them into uh, the, the staple crop plants. In, in the Soviet Union. Well, in the Soviet Union, but his idea was the, the, for the whole world. You know, yes. what's, what's the problem? You go over there into these, in these countries, and you collect these seeds, you bring them back, you start a seed bank, which he did. Yes. A fantastic seed bank in, in St. Petersburg, the first collection of crop seeds anywhere in the world. Um, and uh, eventually he had 250,000 seeds there by mm-hmm. the end of the 30s. Yes. And this this was to become the envy of plant breeders everywhere. Oh, sure, absolutely. Well, um, as the book progresses, it it explains sort of the um, the fundamental difference between um, his ideas about plant breeding and and genetics and those of his arch rival uh, Trofim Lysenko. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind um, ex- sort of explaining that a little more clearly, so that people can understand where why this guy went off the rails with the um, with the regime and what the consequences of it were. I know there was the, the controversy between Mendel and sure. Lamarck. So sure. let's let's start with that. And so, um, so well, originally Mendel, he he figured out um, how how genes work. He didn't know they were called genes, but he figured out by his crossing his peas in his in his uh, monastery garden um, that you could come up with the genes. Sometimes they skipped a generation. Sometimes they appeared in the next. Sometimes they Anyway, when they mixed up, 
there was a mix. And, and so he figured out that he could breed peas and he could make them have yellow flowers or blue flowers or whatever, uh, different ones, by, by selecting them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, um, so he wrote his essay and that um, lay dormant for about 30 years because pe- people, including Darwin, just simply didn't get around to reading it. It's sort of one wow. of the great holes in history. Um, and uh, anyway, around the turn of the century, people started reading it again and said, oh, okay, fine, this looks great. So if we want to breed better corn plants or wheat plants or tomatoes or whatever you want, um, you have to select the good, the fine ones, and then you breed those out. And that's what uh, Vavilov decided to do. Let's call him Nikolai. So it's more, I think so, yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he he decided that's that's what you could do. So this is this was a new idea at the time. This was something <clears throat> that you could you could go and you could find all the genes. For, in, for example, in Ethiopia or something, he might find um, a wheat plant that withstood drought. So he would take that plant back to Russia, breed it to um, a plant that has lots of commonly has lots of water. Um, and uh, then if there was a drought that year, that wheat plant might withstand that drought. Yes. So it was a great breeding thing. Now, the other way to look at that, um, the, the other idea was uh, the Lamarckian idea, which was that you would, plants and everybody else, for that matter, frogs, people, you know, um, what you? Would, yeah. would pick up um, uh, particular characteristics during their lifetime. For example, if your son was a boxer and he got huge muscles, then it would be passed on to his progeny. Not true. Right. Um, but it was a clever trick for um, a, this Lysenko fella um, to go up against Nikolai. And, and Lysenko said, no, 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 wait a minute. Um, your way, Nikolai's way, takes about 12 years to breed a, these new genes into this plant to make it a sturdier plant or whatever. My way, I can do it just by talking to my plants and by... And in one generation. And it's one generation. Mm -hmm. So Stalin, if I may go on, Stalin (laughs) looked at this thing and said, oh, well, we've got a real problem here because we've got another famine. Yeah. Um, Due to the collectivization of the Mostly man-made due to the collectivization, right. And so we're not producing, the peasants aren't producing enough food, so let's select... Lysenko over Vavilov, mm-hmm. because Lysenko tells me he can do it in a year or two years or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and so he did. And so Vavilov, although he was much admired, had this great international following, went all over the world, tremendous energy, collected all these seeds, suddenly fell out of favor. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it was, it's, as I read the book, I was struck again and again by um, I mean, honestly, it would have been comical if it weren't so tragic. I mean, reading the incredible stupidity of these apparatchiks in yeah. terms of uh, their confronting uh, scientists of the caliber of Vavilov, uh, who was presenting all over the world and who had the backing of, of an international community of scientists, um, versus uh, this this 
fool. <laughs> yes, that's right. Lysenko. Yes, right. And, and, his, and his very dubious supporters, of which yeah. there were probably maybe three or four besides Stalin himself. But in the end, that was what carried the day, was his, uh, you know. And when, and when, when Lysenko failed to produce um, these extra uh, special crops, right. why did he not fall out of favor? I, I didn't really kind of get well, that. Well, um, the, the underlying thing about this is that, of course, Stalin... Lenin knew in the 1920s, when, as soon as the revolution happened, 1917, whatever, yeah. um, <clears throat> Lenin leads it for a bit, he dies in 1924. Um, but he knew perfectly well that you couldn't go in there and execute all the old bourgeoisie because that's where the, um, that's where the expertise... Where the education, the educated the expertise, classes were. That's where the expertise lay, exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you got rid of them... Then you had no science, no education, no, you know, commerce, no, no, no well, in any cost, but um, you know, no science and education, which was right. the big thing, mm-hmm. right? So you had to keep these guys on, like Vavilov, uh, who came of the merchant class. He wasn't exactly a toff, but you know, or an aristocrat, <laughs> but he was his father, who had been himself, um, you know. He'd been born into slavery at some point and to serfdom, but he got out of it. And in that sort of period between, you know, uh, over, the, over the century, that, that over the 1900 period, um, he became one of the sort of first merchant class. So Vavilov, actually, Nikolai, grew up uh, perfectly well off. Yes. His father was a textile manager in a, in a factory in yeah. Moscow. Although eventually his father was purged as well and had to leave the country, right? Didn't his he father to to had to leave Bulgaria the country. Bulgaria or something to try yes. to well, save uh, his skin. That's right. They were, well, they, they did go after that class, mm-hmm. and most of that class went to Europe yeah. in some way. Actually, Vavilov's father went to Bulgaria for unknown reasons. But he, anyway, he did. Um, and he was a failure, and he came back and he died. In, I don't know, oh, just weeks it. after his return, apparently. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's, That's very right. sad. So the underlying thing was, you know, Lenin accepted these guys, the, the, the red specialists, the bourgeois specialists, as he called them, said, okay, well, well, we'll keep them going, but we know perfectly well that they're against us and eventually we'll have to get rid of them. So when Stalin took over from Lenin uh, <clears throat> in 1925, uh, the... He decided, um, he always had his eye on them, and he said, well, okay, come, you know, 1929-30, with the big break from the West, as it were, we will we'll get rid of all these people, because these bourgeois specialists, because not only do they not really support us in their, in their gut, but they... Uh, they might rise up against us. In any case, they're probably spies. Mm-hmm. Yes, thought, the, the paranoia was just incredible. That's right. Absolutely so, amazing. So poor old Nikolai was a victim of that, yes, as well certainly. as being a victim of this ignorant choice of Lysenko over him as the person who should be in charge of Russian agriculture. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's a really, it's an extraordinary story. I must say you've told it so well because it's, it reads like a, almost like a thriller in a way. I mean, it's not quite as gripping as, you know, I don't know, one of those sort of cheesy guys, but. Do you mean Dan Brown? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But it, I mean, for an historical story, it's a really, I mean, it was a really, your research is phenomenal. And one of the questions I had, and I know David has a question for you too, um, but one of the biggest questions I had was, how did you get access to so many of his papers? 
Well, how, how did you? How were you able to get you know letters and notes and and quotes from people who were his contemporaries and so forth? Well, after Stalin fell, and um, you know there was in the fifties there was a kind of oh we must um, admit to to uh, Stalin's crimes and we must rehabilitate those who um, were mm-hmm. victims of it, and so um, <clears throat> Nikolai was one of them. So he became a hero, actually, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, he has a son called Yuri, yes. who is still alive in Moscow. Mm-hmm. And um, and if you are uh, the relative, direct relative, of a person who was, um, you know, interrogated, condemned to death, executed, put in prison, whatever, by the then KGB, um, you can have access to your files. Oh, cool. So Yuri got access to his files, and he very graciously shared them with me. Uh-huh. And so uh, that's how we got the interrogation uh, files from the old oh, KGB. Yeah. And some of the, the exchanges between uh, Nikolai and uh, Lysenko yeah. were just breathtaking. I mean, yeah. incredible. But, um, David, you wanted to ask something. We have David Grotenstein from... Um, uh, my my next guest in the studio, and so I, I can see he has Hello, a question. David. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm fine. Um, I was just curious because uh, uh, did he have, did Nikolai have any chance at all? It sounds like he was a victim of this. I want to say class prejudice. It was totally a class. Uh, and so, if uh, Lysenko had never emerged, let's say, would might might his work have come into play? And uh, and it, it, since it didn't, uh, did it disappear, or did somebody else? find his work and move on with it? or Oh, okay. Um, well, first of all, um, would he have had a chance if Lysenko hadn't been there or something? I think if Lysenko hadn't been there, somebody else would have taken Lysenko's place because Stalin really needed a scapegoat uh, for the, for the famines, famines. That, yeah. he had, that he had created through um, this collectivization process. So, so Lysenko became kind of a, a, a quick fix and then a failure and a scapegoat. That's correct. That's correct. But yeah. but he lived on. Lysenko lived on. Yeah. And uh, actually, it was very, very difficult to to teach, to study, to do anything with genetics until the 70s when Lysenko died. And even after he died, they still were thinking, oh, poor Lysenko, some of his followers. You know? <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was an unbelievable untold event for for uh, Russian science. It was, it had incredibly far-reaching, yeah, I was just going to say the consequences went on and on. Um, One more question, or actually I have a million more questions, but another question I had was, by 1939, Americans had developed a hybrid corn with a really high yield. And since that was before World War II, I was kind of wondering why um, that technology, as it were, was not shared with the Soviet Union. Was that because the Soviet Union refused to acknowledge, or the United States would not do business with them. It was shared with the Soviet Union. In fact, mm-hmm. many, many, many things were shared between, um, between the United States and the Soviet Union oh. in, the, in the early days. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, no, that was perfectly... You know, he... Um, Vavilov knew perfectly well about it. He tried to push it. Yeah. Uh, he tried to say, look, we should actually take a look at this thing. And Lysenko just overruled it. So no, this is bourgeois nonsense. You can't have it. You know? Yeah, it's a capitalist conspiracy to uh, to gut the revolution. Yeah, it I mean, was it, amazing how much ideology played into um, the science. I, I was stunned by that. By how much yeah. it was about the bourgeois mentality versus the comrade mentality, and and how much of an impact that had on on both the persecution of Vavilov, but also the the sort of overall health and well-being of the population. Well, that's right. Well, you are, but you 
ask you a very good question because the, you know you have to have to think if if most of the and and almost all of the academic um, events in the, in uh, in Russia were uh, you know were at the at the at the command of the Tsar. Um, at the grace of the Tsar, he funded all this, the Academy of Sciences, he started it, all this sort of thing. So all the people who were in science at the time of the revolution were all those people who they, the revolution wanted to get rid of. Yeah. So <clears throat> when it came to, you know, how, what, what do you do about all this, they, they then started um, a, they then started these communist universities. So you had to be a comrade, had to be a member of the party to go yeah. to these universities. And the idea, Lenin's idea and then Stalin's idea, was to create this cadre of red specialists, they called them, and mm. as opposed to bourgeois specialists. And the red specialists were rushed through these universities with very little education and came out the other end with a politicized agenda, mm -hmm. which which fitted in perfectly well with Lysenko and his uh, fraudulent ideas about plant breeding, mm -hmm. um, so so th so that's basically how it happened, and and so it was it was you know it was a class thing, it was also a deliberate political science move um, to ignore. Those, those specialists, and then, you know, if necessary, if they didn't behave themselves, lock them up or execute them. Well, I was, I was struck by the fact that Vavilov, um, uh, or Vavilov, uh, pers persevered in, in spite of the fact that his comrades were being arrested. I mean, it seemed to take a long time for him to really um, accept that he was, you know, sort of next in line to be ex at least arrested, if not executed. I mean, so many of his colleagues fell well, um, right. in those last few years before he was arrested. Uh, I was I was stunned that he did not defect. I he, I just couldn't understand that. He he simply couldn't believe that in the end they would see reason, and they right. would see and they would see the scientific fact. And they would come around to his way of thinking. And it just never happened. He simply didn't believe it. So the and man who wanted to feed the world was the man who died of malnutrition in uh, the Stalin prison that's, system. That's correct. Yeah. Um, I'm going to wrap this up here, and I thank yeah. you so much for being on the show with us. But my last question for you was yeah. this. In the end, how much did Vavilov um, accomplish for, for the world and for Russian science? Well, I think that, you know, the legacy is... Uh, first of all, the idea of seed banks. Mm -hmm. the and of course, of we it. have the new one in Finland now. We do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the seeds uh, that existed um, in his original seed bank in Leningrad um, <coughs> are, are in that seed bank in Norway. Yes. Oh, it's uh, in Norway, in right. That's right. The so-called the, the, so doomsday book. But, I mean... You know, he he wasn't somebody who he didn't produce any great theories like Mendel and Darwin or anything like that. But he steered the 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 world's plant breeders into a certain direction mm -hmm. by look by saying you have to go to these five centers of origin that he used to call them of where those special genes come from for these crop plants. You have to go and collect them, and then you have to put them in the seed bank. So that so that basically is the legacy you know he he left with them this idea 
that you've got to do it on an international basis. It's got to be done global. Uh-huh. Um, you know, people weren't thinking about global anything in those days. No, think. certainly not. I mean, it was sort of every man for himself in a way. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, the interesting legacy to my mind, in a way, is that um, even though his Vavilov's ideal was to feed the world, uh, he sort of gave rise to what in the end has become the Monsanto monster, um, where plant genetics have become a matter of of finding that highest yield and then forcing people to plant that. (laughs) Yeah, well... How, how 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 long have you got, Katie? We could go on oh, about that. One. Well, you know what? You're going to come back. I hope. <laughs> when your ankle is better, I hope you'll come out to Roberta's and um, you know be in the studio, and we can just we can get really busy with this whole subject okay. because okay. Norman Borlaug died this year, I know, and that was I, know. I wanted to bring that up with you, but I unfortunately have to move on. So um, I want to thank you again, and the book bu- the book once again, folks, uh, is the murder of Nikolai Vavilov, the story of Stalin's persecution of one of the great scientists of the 20th century. It reads like a thriller. The author, Peter Pringle, uh, has been our guest today. Thank you very much for joining us. And I look forward to having you again and again on the show. Yeah. This was really an honor. Well, you're you're, you're very kind. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, David. Yep. I'll meet you sometime. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Next time you come. Okay. Okay. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We are sponsored today by our friends at Hearst Ranch. Um, and we are engineered by Nat Wiener, produced by Jack Inslee. And um, our first guest was Peter Pringle, the fabulous journalist and author of The Murder of Nikolai Vavilov. We have a lot to talk about there, and I'm hoping that he'll come back. And now we're going to turn our focus to the grocery business. My guest in the studio today is David Grotenstein, who I've known for, got to be about 30 years. Yeah. I doubt I date myself horribly, but there it's you go. Almost thirty years. Yeah, it's got to be. And um, David is now the director of operations for the Garden of Eden. Yes, I've been there four months actually. Is my and you were were you at Fairway before that or did Fairway you was kind of my alma mater in yeah, the food business. And I went back to Fairway. Fairway I was Fairway from eighty six to ninety four. Yeah, I was a specialty foods manager for them. Right. So I've been, and I started with you at. At Pasta and Pasta Cheese, and way cheese. back when, when Henry Lambert was they were, rocking the world. They were kind of pioneers, know. really, yeah. you know, not not so much in retail, but in, uh, you know, they developed the modified atmosphere technology that, like, yeah. all the fresh pasta you see. Well, one of the things they did know. that I thought was so mm-hmm. smart in terms of marketing was having us cut pasta right on the floor where right. people could see us doing it. Right. It was an incredibly tedious task. <laughs> But somebody had to do it. But somebody had to do it, and it, it really brought people in yeah. uh, to the store. And then yeah. they, they, you know, the merchandising, the way they set up the stores, the the sort of yeah. luxurious quality to um, right. the way all of the stores looked, no matter how yeah, crummy the little that, hole that, was. Yeah, and that the theater, you 
know, the theater of food uh, uh, yeah. then and now and continuing, although it's a little bit of a challenge now these days. Uh, uh, well, there's a lot more competition and it's become what you and I were talking about earlier yeah. uh, before we started the show was the fact that the, the, the so-called gourmet food has yeah. become very much of a mainstream um, yeah, and uh, and, and uh, 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 gourmet has become a very uh, uh, overworked and uh, very mis- overworked. misused uh, word. And uh, 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 well, now people use the word foodie, which really makes foodie. Me gag. Yeah, that's kind of it's a little too Sex in the City for. I don't know. It's, it's I don't a, know what it is. I just think it's yeah. bad grammar and bad <laughs> <laughs> and even worse nomenclature. I mean, it's yeah. like a foodie. No, no. I'm not subscribing. No, to food that. lover is still like a food lover. Yes, a food, yes, a food like, enthusiast. You know, you know, and more than anything else, you know, uh, you know. Uh, appreciative you know that you you know that you go into a store you know if you're in a any metropolitan area uh, but almost anywhere now you know you go in and that you really uh, appreciate the, the you know the privilege of eating and that you you understand yeah. that you uh, have all this tremendous food at your fingertips this incredible bounty yeah. of product yeah. um from all around the world right. and um you know aside from the carbon footprint that we all get so worried mm-hmm. about at least we did last year when the gas prices went up over mm. four bucks a gallon. Right. um now it doesn't seem to be as much of an issue right. i notice right and of course <laughs> it's not an issue very much for uh, uh new yorkers i suppose and other right. cosmopolitan types who are who do all their shopping on foot yeah yeah. Or yeah. through Fresh Direct. Yeah, right. They have the carbon. <laughs> yeah, they've got the a carbon massive footprint. carbon footprint. Massive. I would think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so tell us about uh, the Garden of Eden, which is one of I think one of the more interesting chains that has uh, grown in the last, as you said, twenty years. Yeah, there. Um, that was news to me. I was not aware that they'd been around that long. First store has come and gone. First store was that over was on Third Avenue. Third Avenue. Third. Right. And, I remember uh, that, was that the one. First store. Yeah. And then they have uh, actually five stores mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the New York metro area. There are three in Manhattan. Uh, one on the Upper West Side where we ran yes, into each other. right. Like and, across the street uh, from my house. <laughs> right, and uh, uh, in Chelsea on 23rd Street and yes. near Union Square, and then there's one in Brooklyn Heights and another one in Hoboken uh-huh. uh, as well. And so, you know, and that's a family-run business, right? It's a family-run business, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a Turkish family, as I understand. That's right. yep. And yep. what's, uh, I, I, I sometimes hear that they're not so easy to work for, but I guess uh, they certainly are smart guys because uh, they've I, done a beautiful job of merchandising that store. Having, 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 Having uh, been in the food business for a long time, that uh, being easy to work for has not been, in my experience, based on anybody's ethnic or cultural background. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you either do the job well and they like you, or you don't and they don't. I've been in many places where somebody's not yelling at you, you've had a good day. Yeah. (laughs) So so, uh, uh, I can't attribute it to anything other than a certain entrepreneurial type, I think. uh, Yes, uh, well, it's a high... It's a high stakes uh, proposition. Yeah. I mean, when oh, you're bringing yeah. in inventory that costs yeah. what their inventory costs. I yeah. mean, let's face it, this is not um, a ShopRite. This is not, uh, you know, Kroger's. Mm-hmm. This is high end food, the right. very nicest quality of fruits and vegetables. Yeah, they have you. gorgeous meat. Um, we have a new butcher in the one at 107th Street. Yeah. He's adorable. Oh, yeah. He's, he's doing a great job, too. He's yeah. terrific. And he's a real butcher, unlike right. having somebody who's just kind of like taking the well, stuff you're, out you're, of the cryovac. You're hitting on the interesting challenge uh, uh, these days. And, you know, as, uh, as um, uh, people's uh, uh, belts tighten, you know, yeah. uh, which is happening to everybody. Although sure. the economy, I don't think, is a, uh, a factor necessarily for where people are hurting. Uh, at certain peaks, uh, t- you know, high-end uh, tiers in the, in the food business, yes. But uh, everybody's eating. Everybody's got to... And more sure. people actually are cooking at home than eating out. And so yes. uh, it's a good time for uh, food shops. But how people perceive you and uh, 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 what they uh, think you do uh, uh, can, be, uh, can be critical. So for us, 
Uh, I would rather not be perceived as a gourmet shop or as a specialty shop or as anything uh, like that. I really want the everyday customer to come in and see uh, Cisco, the butcher, just the way you're saying, because we, you know, we... Uh, you know, carry good stuff at comparable prices, but uh, sometimes if they you... are comparable prices, yeah. they're really not bad. I've you know. been, uh, and sometimes there's some real deals there, yeah. and uh, it's yeah. it's very nice quality. Where do you guys get your meat, actually? Uh, we have a handful of uh, uh, wholesalers that we mm-hmm. uh, work with around town, uh, 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 you know, fairly closely, and uh, most of the shops do. Uh, do their butchering on premises. They work. They'll work yeah. from prime cuts. So we're not uh, just pre- getting prepacks yeah. and throwing right. it out on the stand. Right. You know. And, yeah. Uh, I was trying to get at that because yeah. I think that makes a big difference. I mean, in terms of again, you and I were talking earlier about the the challenges that the meat industry mm. is facing mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their of uh, their public relations and how people perceive whether or not food is safe. Right. Um, I think it's very reassuring to people to know that a grocery store chain is actually uh, buying their stuff from specific sources that they have vetted right. and that they have an expert on premises who is evaluating the meat and making sure right. that all of the the cold chain is pursued and that there are yeah. no pathogens We had entering. calls the other day about the you know the ground beef that uh, was yeah. recalled and the people want to know if what they got from us is okay and you say yeah we grind it ourselves that's right and yeah. you know it's just another lesson in knowing where your food comes from and and being familiar with who you're buying it from right so and that's one of the reasons why I right. like having on uh, you know people like you who can talk about these smaller businesses in New York they're yeah. not part of a of a national chain yeah. um, they have a very a personal and vested interest in the quality of their products right. and you might pay a couple cents more but really overall your the, the level of quality is so much higher that it's you well, know thank if you're you. really yeah. at all and interested it's, it's, it's the it's cha- well worth it it's the challenge that's the thing is that uh, we have uh, 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 the one thing that we have to provide is uh, you know the quality of product and the service in the store that uh, the uh, you know as yeah. Uh, uh, others have come into town and are providing uh, 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 alternatives uh, for uh, New Yorkers. You know, Whole Foods is a huge player in New York uh, now. And I think that's so interesting. I mean, I was going to say, who's your biggest competition? Then I thought, well, obviously it's Whole Foods. It's, <laughs> it isn't. It isn't some in some spots. Uh, 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 you had uh, uh, um, somebody from West Side Market on. They're, yes. a comp- they're a competitor up on our Upper West Side store. They are. They're you know. they're a little more. I mean, I love West Side Market. I, I work with them a lot. Um, I think they're a great outfit. They are a slightly different demographic, and they have a slightly different philosophy. Hard to believe towards... that only in New York could somebody be three blocks away, away and, and have be a, a different, different demographic. demographic but you know? they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're you know they have a little bit of a different philosophy towards what they're doing. I mean, they want to be a little more sort of price conscious. They want to offer more of right. the deals. And they have, a, you know, they don't. In for example, the 110th Street, they don't. They have a fish counter, but they don't have a service butcher in the right. Store. That's right. All right, exactly. So, uh, you know, you, you know, and you you are who you are, and all you can do is uh, you you can't uh, compete by uh, imitating what others are doing or saying that's a better way. You really have to understand what your own core values are, what it is you're mm-hmm. trying to achieve, and presenting it in a way that's really. Uh, obvious to your customers, I think that's where a lot of people uh, fall down. Is that they're doing something really interesting in the store, but what that is exactly is not communicated successfully to the right. customers. Well, and also something like Westside is is trying to be more of a broadline. Hmm. Um, Marketplace where you can buy, you know, household cleaners and you know, plastic right. shopping bags, you know, uh, right. garbage and we're, bags and stuff. We're little. Garden of Eden does not do that. You mm. don't have the space, and I don't think it's it's part of your sort of mandate. It's yeah, and really again, it's you a, it's your identity. It's a uh, uh, you know, times like these, I think, a real opportunity for uh, smaller, uh, full service neighborhood uh, stores uh, like ours, and uh, and uh, 
I had uh, been a couple of years prior to uh, coming to the garden uh, at uh, Union Market in uh, in uh, Park Slope, and they're mm-hmm. a really good example of somebody who's really captured the neighborhood. They have two. Uh, stores at opposite ends of Park Slope, and they're little stores. They're like 2,500 square feet, but they're full service, and they do great. They mm-hmm. just really they really address the needs of uh, the neighborhood. You know, you want to be responsive to your customers and uh, and uh, 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 provide whatever it is that they need, and that's something that uh, 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 often is difficult to achieve uh, in a larger store or in a larger chain, just that personal edge, you know, that really, uh, that really makes a difference. Well, and also creating an identity that is really as distinct yeah. as yeah. say the Garden of Eden identity, which <clears throat> for better or worse is one that's associated with sort of a somewhat higher quality and, yeah, and a somewhat yeah. pricier, yeah. uh, you know. Well, that's, and there's the separation. That's the, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, separate the quality from that, uh, that pricey notion, you know, that you mm-hmm. have, you have, you, you have two product groups. You have products that are, uh, expensive, and then you have products that are overpriced, and that that's different. And sometimes a lot of people think uh, uh, something is just you're being charged too much for something, yeah. and that can happen. You, you'll you'll walk into uh, you know there certainly uh, the more d- discount places. You know people. You know you you go into a Costco. I mean you have to buy forty pounds of something, but you know your Paul <laughs> Newman's salad dressing is so much cheaper than it is almost anywhere else you can sure. buy it. And people wonder why. You know they they come in and, and uh, make the comparisons. Sometimes they're Let's talk for a minute about how a smaller chain competes uh, in terms of their buying power mm. with a chain that's huge, like a national, uh, you know, like a Kroger's or yeah. or even a Wegmans or something like that, that, um, you know, has has can buy in greater quantity, can distribute it more uh, efficiently and right. probably more economically than well, you the, guys can. Well, yeah, price-wise, uh, 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 it's almost impossible to compete. You can't, you you cannot get uh, that kind of, uh, on, on perishable items, I think it's actually... Uh, might be uh, a little easier than mm-hmm. on, you know, g- grocery items. You know, people have warehouses. They buy container loads, pallet loads. They buy all kinds of things. You yeah. know, we're, you know, we have our combined square footage for five stores is this, you know, would, wouldn't be the size of a Wegmans. You don't you have know. a central um We did. You know, it's funny. Warehouse. We did p- prior to my coming there, uh, uh, and I'm there I'm just about four months now, and uh, 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 we did have a warehouse uh, operation that we decided to shut down. Actually, that it wasn't uh, uh, wasn't paying off for the kind of personal attention I think each store needed, and that each store uh, wanted to uh, give to the particular customer base in each neighborhood. And because you're buying from afar, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you're not necessarily you're not necessarily in touch with your. The, the inventories in the store you're buying uh, you're buying with this kind of even hand for every store when in actuality from neighborhood to neighborhood one item might sell well might not sell so well in another store I was going to ask you yeah. if there's a big difference between the stores in terms of the product that you sell uh, there there are some subtle differences you know mm-hmm. you have uh, you have some neighborhoods where uh, you know like in the meat department for example where you, you know pork sells less well than in other neighborhoods mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. just uh, it just happens but you know it's not to me it's not the way to uh uh, uh you know I, I suppose when a chain gets really big you have to work uh in some kind of uh, dictatorial way but for me i would much prefer uh that the stores and each department within the store really take charge of their own inventory and uh, the management of their inventory and that they you know for our kind of the new way we're conceiving the centralized purchasing is that it's just to provide, um, you know, the shopping list for everybody. Say, look, here are the products we would like to carry. 
here are the people we would like to get them from. You, and, you know, as you suggested a minute ago that, you know, even though we're a small change, you want, chain, you want to make as much use of your buying power as possible, which means that you decide that you're going to get one item from one vendor. The stores uh, had been buying kind of independently. So, you know, we could be buying the same product from five different people or... Mm-hmm. Or you could Some, buy a lot more of it from one guy and get a better deal. Yeah, exactly. And again, uh-huh. that's so you want to make that. Uh, you want to make that. Uh, so who do you? Who are the distributors that you work with? You work oh, with all the usual suspects. Yeah, all the usual. Just Cisco, about everybody. Baldor. Uh, Baldor. Uh, United. Cisco, I think not so much. United Naturals is big for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, in grocery, like uh, Steiner and Nassau Candy and people like that. Uh, are you do. able to buy stuff from local? Do you do subscribe? Is this chain able to subscribe to sort of the the locavorg craze? Uh, we're not. Uh, you know, I, it's part of what. Uh, uh, you know, I hope to do. I don't think we were. I don't think it's in, been in the psyche that much. Although we are starting to. Uh, you know, cheese is a, a topic. Uh, I have near, noticed that you have a lot more New York State and we're cheeses. we're starting to. Yeah, I have uh, uh, distributors uh, now uh, looking for me locally. Actually, there's one distributor up in uh, the Boston area who's put together a New England program for me. So we're mm-hmm. starting to bring. Is that Sid Wainwright? No, it's a it's a, a, a company called Sheila Marie Imports, who's now uh, huh. part of uh, Atlanta Foods International, and so they're 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 giving me a new program every week for uh, New England cheeses that we're bringing into the store. Nice. This week I'm doing a uh, a cloth bound cheddar smackdown between <laughs> uh, Cabot and Grafton Village, uh, both of whom are producing now cloth bound cheddar. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, you know I'm uh, I'm. Um, um, part of what I do is I'm a chair of the judging for the American Cheese Society. I know we should talk. We should and talk be, cheese for a few minutes yeah. too. Yeah. But uh, 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 that particular subcategory of cheddar has grown so dramatically mm-hmm. over the last uh, couple of years that we had to create a separate subcategory within cheddars just for cloth-bound uh, uh, cheddars. And in fact, that's broken down into new two subcategories uh, dependent on the age of the cheese. Wow. Uh, because the characteristic changed so much. But but everybody's trying to wants us to carry these cheddars and you know they say mine's better no yours is better so we decided to leave it up to the customers we put them both out fantastic we'll have to have a little cheese tasting sometime Um, on that same note the other day I actually was in um, Garden of Eden in my neighborhood and I Mm. I purchased a bufala taleggio which was Really love it. That's a fairly new import, yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. never seen that before. I've actually never seen it anywhere before. It's a, it's so, a, 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 a. Of course, you were sold out of it. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I'm glad and sorry to hear that. <laughs> that's all right. You had a regular Taleggio that was in uh, perfect condition. Yeah. So Yeah, that's a blended the cheese. It's a, it's a, I think, 60. 60-40 buffalo to cow, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Yeah. It was fantastic. It's nice, yeah. yeah it was really, yeah. a really nice texture, yeah. very nice flavor. Nice. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, you guys have a nice, nice counter. I mean, the thing that bugs me about the cheeses, especially American cheeses, mm-hmm. why are American cheeses more expensive than the imports? How well, it's that a, that's a, it's a, it's The a, dollar is weak. I mean, you would think it would be uh It's a very logical, the same reason that, it, you know, it's because mo- most of these cheeses come out of small batch productions, and they're mm-hmm. they're really... Uh, farmstead and artisanal cheeses and so uh, 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 they're just more expensive to produce a lot of our uh, the cheeses we grew up with you know one you know one of the things you, you, you know, I walk into a lot of stores and I see the same lineup of cheeses that I've been looking at for 15 20 years they're, they're all distributor driven and yeah. uh, uh, well you uh, see uh, them at the fancy food show yeah. when you see like these giant French distributors who come in yeah. with exactly the same you know and they're they're very uh, not to disparage they're very worthy cheeses oh, yeah. but there's nothing uh, new necessarily about them and in the meantime uh, uh, many of these cheeses are made in larger cooperatives, you know, and so the the milk sources. And in fact, it's, a, it's an intriguing area for a lot of us in cheese. Is that how do they do it? You know, we know that they 
you know, how does a how does a protected cheese, an AOC cheese, uh, get enough milk to to uh, uh, provide for the world market? It succeeded in commandeering. You know that the, now you know everybody buys uh, Morbier. Everybody buys, uh, you know, it's all over the place. Actually, the two cheeses that really stick out in my mind in, t- in that terms of that are the ones, the one that's called um, Rocchetta and Latour, mm-hmm. which are both Italian cheeses. Mm-hmm. And they're, I mean, they're absolutely fabulous cheeses. Yeah. They came on the market just a few years Not ago. Very, they're relatively, yeah, recent. relatively right, recent, yeah. but they are world distributed. Yeah. They're made in large batches, but they have a very yeah. artisanal quality and yeah. feel to them, that's and right. they certainly produce the taste. Yeah. And I was, I've always been really curious about that particular um, co-op because it Mm -hmm. obviously is a big co-op how they manage to keep the quality that consistent when they're producing that much cheese and it's uh, it's ongoing you have to uh if let's say your dream comes true and you 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 know you get all this business what do you do you have to constantly uh uh, find new milk sources or Mm -hmm. uh work with farmers who are capable of increasing their uh production so getting back to your uh, initial question was that it's not you know somebody's got a farm with 15 cows is you know that's what they're doing and uh, there's no um, the motivation may not be there to grow the business in that way to bring costs down because you're producing the quality of the cheese um, uh, is the only is the only importance you know mm-hmm. that it has it, nothing else matters nothing else you know for you know one of the things we notice uh, you know in the judging is just because you go through the motions of uh, being artisanal or farmstead or whatever it is doesn't automatically mean that you make a good or great cheese. Uh, Definitely you not. Know, you know, still, you still have to. <laughs> so that's what's most important. So once you find your formula, and I would say also, um, you know, we sell, the cheeses sell. They do sell. People, I think people in that the tier, it's like somebody's buying an $80 bottle of wine versus somebody's buying a $12 bottle of wine. People understand the nuances. They understand the differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story, the romance of the cheese helps, but it doesn't, you know, it's really secondary, you know, frankly, to what somebody goes through to make a cheese. How's the cheese? And, uh, you know, for me, it's actually the most exciting and interesting area in all of specialty foods right now is the uh, emergence of American cheese. Cheeses. Cheese They're makers, really, yeah. It's really like new food. Oh, it's it's a huge new trend. Actually, one yeah. of the people that I'm hoping to have on via phone in a few weeks is... Um a uh, woman from the Narragansett Creamery in Rhode mm-hmm. Island because mm-hmm. they're producing about six different cheeses. They took over an old mozzarella factory. Uh-huh. And they're now, um, they give classes in cheesemaking when the farmer's markets are done for the season in right. November. They're giving uh-huh. classes. And she said, we can't keep up with the demand. And I know that um, Ann Saxelby and mm-hmm. and Shauna Pacifico, who's been a host here many times from right. Back 40, um, and a few other people went up to Jasper Hill and took a cheesemaking class there. Right. So it's, it's clearly, you know, for people who are interested in cheese, clearly this is a new trend right. and just i mean it's all part of this whole diy yeah. thing which i think is just fascinating it, i mean everybody wants to be able to make their own beer make their own hard cider make their own cheese i uh-huh. mean do the and the butchering classes last week we had tom mylan on from brooklyn kitchen mm. labs who's going to be running the meat hook there and he's giving classes in butchering and i'm thinking to myself now what consumer <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I learned how to butcher because right. I worked in a butcher shop. Uh, but you're not exactly likely not, to buy a side of I'm beef for home. I'm not taking home uh, a quarter of a cow, well, you know. It's just not happening. Uh, don't but, sell yourself short. You don't know. Yeah, you well, might, uh, might. One day. Yeah, I, I could know. take some refreshers. Well, the thing to do would be get a group and do that. Yes, you know? right. You know? And then but divide you, up you know. your It's true. But yeah. I, I think what this is going to provide, you know, the, the uh, you know, we, we associate, uh, you know, we're a very big country and we associate uh, 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 cheeses and other uh, uh, food items uh, with their countries of origin, and the United States is kind of too big for that. And I think the 
the great strength here is going to be in regional and local development. Uh, yes. Whereas, you know, the customer that, that would come into the store and describe some European experience that they had where they visited some small town, they went to this small market, and they picked up this little goat cheese and whatever, and they describe it to you, and they say, can you get it? And you say, no, of course not. You know, right. it was made for that. It was made to be consumed, you know, 10 miles from where it was produced or That's whatever right. it is. It wouldn't but, survive the trip. But now, now, now we, we're seeing that. I think the green market uh, movement over the last two decades has really uh, contributed to people's uh, uh, awareness. Yeah, I see a lot more cheesemakers in the market than I ever did before. Just in the last right. year and a half, I've noticed a lot more people coming yeah. in with their own cheeses. It's yeah, great. And it's the same as like all the local growers. And so that opportunity now and uh, that uh, awareness, again, it doesn't necessarily... Uh, there's no automatics. It doesn't mean that because something is local, it's better or whatever it is. People, it's one of the pitfalls actually of uh, being a, a producer like this is that you're subject to, you know, the weather one summer or sure. you know whatever whatever it is. So maybe uh, it turns out maybe maybe it doesn't. But uh, generally, uh, you know, the freshness is everything, and so uh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, plus whatever practices people are putting into place. But uh, uh, again, that awareness and that demand is is there, and it's there in every category in the in the stores. And so um to go back to the whole question of like whether or not the Garden of Eden is able to respond to that and also how distribution affects that for you mm. guys because um the thing about working with most distributors um is that it's kind of a challenge to find mm-hmm. distributors who are working with local farmers. Yeah. And um I think that's been one of the biggest um shall we say challenges in in changing uh, right. food and and what we were talking about earlier which is if we can get everybody to participate then everybody's boat is mm-hmm. floated because the prices will go right. down and it becomes more accessible whereas now you know local foods and artisanally raised this and that and and produced whatever it's it's prohibitive for most families well and i think it certainly it, is for me as as a you know through the 90s and i guess uh, the o's or whatever you call this last uh, decade you know <laughs> the uh, 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 th- there was a uh, 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 people wanted to grow. I don't know what it was. It the making growing the business, being bigger, uh, became this uh, uh, mantra. And it really, uh, you know, for what you're describing, the yeah. opportunity, like for us as a smaller retailer, the opportunity is there for somebody who is a smaller focused distributor. You know, you've got the, not not just one distributor, let's say, but many distributors. Uh, will have almost the same line of goods, you know. So Absolutely. all all anybody's really doing is competing on price. They're competing on service, you know. Somebody's box of Cars Table Water Crackers isn't any better than any or fresher than anybody else's. <laughs> right. You know, it's just a question of price and what can I put it out for. So uh, 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 very often, the, a, a larger distributor is not equipped to deal with somebody local uh, uh, in that way. So it's the, actually the opportunity for somebody to set up some smaller. Uh, distribution network uh, that is locally based and to have a modest business that's successful probably easier to manage uh, as well and I would pr- think so and then provide for this uh, real need and the desire that the customer has right. for uh, locally produced product and produ- and support local agriculture exactly. in a way that is meaningful that's really to, meaningful absolutely um, to the people who own that land and, and yeah. work on it because I mean no matter what business you're in in terms of agriculture and, and food production it's there's nothing easy about producing food absolutely no. nothing I mean as somebody who cooked for a living for 20 years yeah. <laughs> I mean you yeah. work your tail off yes you really do, yeah. and that starts right at the farm. I mean, it's just mm. there is not one aspect of the food business that is 
for the faint of heart yes. <laughs> or people who don't like to really work hard and That's physically right. hard. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, for they're all every, you know, they're, they're entrepreneurs. Everybody's on their own. Everybody is self dependent yeah. on themselves, you know, and uh, whatever quirkiness is going on in the uh, uh, marketplace, you know, and, and, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, new cheeses every year this year we, with the recession, and everything in the, in the competition, you know, we had uh, record number of cheeses this year. We thought that we really? would be, you know, over thirteen hundred wow. products in the in judging competition this year. That's fabulous. So uh, uh, the movement is still there. The faith is still there. Yeah. And uh, the uh, the the best part of it is that because uh, it, it's really it's it is competition, but you know, for at least the cheesemakers, the dairy producers, it's friendly competition. But sure. the standard keeps going up because you can't be mediocre anymore because there's somebody else out there who's going to look better than you. So yeah. everybody. Uh, is uh, taking more care, and so it's not just the number of cheeses that we're seeing, uh, but the quality of the cheeses that we're seeing as well continues to. That's very exciting, yeah. I think, because people are yeah. really getting. They're going to Europe. They're getting an education, and even American cheesemakers are starting to educate new mm. cheesemakers. And I think that's a it's a it's a neat new field in the mm. United States, which you know before it was like we produced dairy in Wisconsin, and that was pretty much it. Mm. Um, everybody who had dairy cattle just milked them and sent their milk to right. Wisconsin. And it, it's a very we're very. It's interesting, you know. We're very. Uh, um, Oh, I don't know if this is the American saga, but we're very, uh, you know, we're big and there's a lot of people here. Yeah. And we're so we're very uh, commodity based in the, the right. way uh, we produce things, although the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, we're seeing again now in Wisconsin and, uh, you know, other states, the the emergence of lots and lots of uh, uh, small uh, uh, and intriguing uh, producers. We're seeing new cheeses and new flavors of cheeses you know they remind you of something but you can't really uh, yeah. call it something or pinpoint it uh, as anything and they'll tell you yeah it was inspired by abundance or comte or something like sure. that but it's really got its own flavor because it's because it's new american cheese. milk it's a new it's, cheese with new milk exactly that's it's exactly american right. terroir yeah because that's where you're really i mean yeah. besides from besides wine cheese is really where you flavor taste the flavor of the earth really i that's um, a real thing yeah. that uh yeah. that you know that makes that ends up making the milk taste a certain way and makes right. it react a certain way to the cheese making yeah. process um one thing i wanted to ask you about though in an ancillary sort of question to the cheese making thing was a couple of years ago i reviewed a um a compendium of american farmstead cheese makers and and one of the themes that cropped up over and over again as as the author described these dairy farms was that the reason that these people had gone into making cheese was because the dairy price supports were not working mm-hmm. for them and it was a way of of making more money off of their milk instead mm-hmm. of selling it into um, sort of the commodity market and I yeah. know that this year for instance um, over 500,000 dairy cattle were slaughtered just in the northeast region because the price supports for milk were so low mm. and these you know, farmers could not make a buck on their, they couldn't afford to feed the animals anymore. And so they were making more money by selling them as um, meat. Uh (laughs) And, um, and, you know, I just was curious about why, um, you know, what is, I don't really know enough about the um, price supports or the pricing structure for the dairy business. And I thought maybe since you're in the grocery business. I don't, I don't actually know uh, either. I can't help you out that, that much. I mean, I know what the farmers uh, tell me is that either they produce too much or too little Uh uh, milk for milk. But we buy milk from overseas as well. Hmm. I mean, that's what I've heard is that what's happening is, is that the country is buying the big processors or the big commodities 
um, you know, the big dairies like, I don't know, Highland Farms yeah. or, you know, are buying milk from other countries and that's driving the price of American milk down lower. I know in the cheese business that people are buying uh, curd. You can buy curd. Uh, uh, as a lot of uh, frozen curd comes from really? elsewhere. Uh, especially uh, uh, goat cheese producers. Uh-huh. Cheese Society this year uh, took a uh, asked people to take a pledge. You know, all your all your cheese has to come from American sources. Yes, I think that's important. Yeah, if you're so going to be an American cheesemaker, you yeah, have to so be reflecting people, our soil. Yeah, but so we asked the uh, cheesemakers to take a pledge that they were using all American American products, and for us that includes all of North and South America. It's not the. We are we are in other we're words, not just the eating, continental. We're not just, yeah, it's the continental. Two continental. Yeah, so Canada. You know, we yeah. get, we have a huge number of Canadian sure. entries. Well, the Can- Canadians yeah. uh, have a huge dairy or a huge cattle population. So, but um, you know, for the for business. the for the smaller producer though, I don't uh, you know I don't know that that would I don't know if that's a I don't think a, a big big dairy producer is a competition for a smaller producer. Mm. You know, they're making a completely uh, a different product. They're uh, appealing to a different. Uh, uh, a seg- segment of the market, a more demanding or sophisticated segment of the market. So, mm-hmm. uh, whatever might be going on in the, uh, a broader sense of the, um, uh, of the dairy, of industry. dairy industry, wouldn't I, I wouldn't think would be uh, uh, impacting uh, uh, on on um, what somebody was making. They're making an expensive product anyway. Uh, that is going out to a, uh, a, a customer who understands the value of the product. Right. Uh, and they, again, they continue to, to sell. It's easier to sell an expensive cheese of quality than a mediocre cheese at a kind of high price. Or kind of, yes. you, know, you know, something that's in that, uh, you know, 12 to $15 pound range is a harder sell than a cheese that's really good that's over $20 a pound. Yes, that makes sense to me. Because, mm. I mean, after all, you get what you pay for. Yeah. Well, mm. David, I guess I hear from my boys out there that um, my my producer and my engineer, Nat Wiener and Jack Inslee, mm. um, that we only have about a minute left. So I'm going to say thank you so much for joining us today on The Main Course. Pleasure. Um, my guest has been David Grotenstein um, from the Garden of Eden and a former um, almost lifer at Fairway. <laughs> <laughs> Right, um, and somebody who has grown up just like I have in the in the the specialty food trade, and mm. really, I hope you'll come back and talk I will. to us again. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much for here. joining us. All right.